If you don't know me, I'm pleased to know you now for the first time. Um, we are experiencing some reverb. Um, but in addition to that, we're going through the book of Jonah now. We're at uh, chapter 2 out of our little three-part series. Uh, if you were with us last week, then you would have caught the first part. Otherwise, I'm sure you'll catch up. It's a pretty straightforward story. I'll give you a recap. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll see what God's Word has to say for us. So I'm going to read out Jonah chapter 2. And then we'll pray, and then we'll get stuck into his word. Here we go. Jonah chapter 2. Actually, I'll give you a second to find it in your Bibles if you haven't. Um, if you didn't bookmark it from last time, well, tough. I'm not helping you. Um, all right, here we go. Jonah chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths. Into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the, roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. To those, well, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you again for the privilege to study your word. We pray that you open our hearts to your word and you open your word to our hearts. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. So, we've seen Jonah 1. We've seen Jonah flee from the presence of God. He was given a command to take a warning to the Ninevites in the city of Nineveh um, that they were rebelling against God and they needed to change their ways. He was given that command then Jonah rebelled against God and fled in the opposite direction. So we've seen that much so far. We've seen him jump on a boat, going as far away from his destination as possible. Uh, we've seen God send a storm to distress that boat. And finally, we've seen Jonah, at the end of that chapter, thrown overboard and then swallowed up by a fish. So what happens now? Well, first things first, we need to do groundwork for our passage, as we always do. Now, if you're following along in your own Bible you'll notice that every line between the first and the last in this chapter is indented a little bit. And that usually means we're looking at some kind of poetry. That's the textual clue. This is a prayerful, poetic outburst from Jonah's heart. So for the duration of that indent, we have to realize we're looking at poetry. It's slightly different from the historical narrative that the majority of the book makes up. So we have to take off our historical narrative hats and put on our... Hebrew poetry berets, and then prepare ourselves for this. Now, the problem we experience with poetry in Scripture, both here and everywhere else we find it in Scripture, is that there just aren't that many Australians left who read things like The Man from Snowy River anymore. We're a very unpoetic culture. We're not really into that anymore. We tend to have a very low view of poetry. When someone gets up to read a poem at a funeral or a wedding, Lots of Australians cringe, not because we hate poetry, we just don't connect with it terribly well. It's not something a lot of us do. 
And if you had a niece or a nephew who told you they wanted to be a poet when they grew up, you'd almost certainly be secretly hoping they had a couple more irons in the fire than that. Now, that's our loss because a lot of Scripture is poetry. And if we have no platform to start understanding things like this, we tend to fly over it very fast and miss a lot of what we can get out of it if we know how to interrogate that Scripture, right? In the case of Jonah 2, we can read these 10 verses and then ask our brain, in all these parallelisms and couplets and things, what was actually said? And is it more than Jonah just saying, gosh, I nearly drowned, thanks for saving me, God? We're people who like hard facts and summary briefings and pie charts to represent things. Waiting around in ancient poetry is not super inviting. But there's a lot to get out of this chapter, and we do need to give it that same interrogation we give other pieces of scripture. So we'll put on our uh, poetry berets, and we'll turn Jonah's prayer upside down and see what falls out, and we may be surprised. The first thing is this poem is a kind of a prayer within a prayer within a prayer, which is a little confusing, but bear with me. There's a few layers here. First, verse 1 tells us that Jonah prayed this from inside the fish. So level one is this this spontaneous prayer that's burst up inside his heart when he realizes he's not dead. He's merely woken up in some gross air pocket in the guts of a giant fish. That's level one. Level two comes from the fact that miraculous as this is, it seems unlikely that Jonah was swallowed with a desk full of writing supplies. So he probably composed this after he got out of the fish. So the poem that we have immortalized in scripture here is probably composed sometime after he got out of the fish. And not to mention, Jonah 1.17 tells us that he was, in fact, in that fish for three days. Three days and three nights. Now, if you were trapped in a comfortable hotel room for three days and three nights, you'd probably have said more to God than ten verses by then. Jonah's in the guts of some kind of sea creature. He's probably going through cycles of confusion and claustrophobia and weeping gratitude for his life and long meditative prayer and all kinds of emotional extremes. So it seems unlikely that he sat down, composed 10 verses of a poem, and then just sort of napped for the next 71 hours. We can be pretty sure this is a kind of a best-of album for his prayers while he was there. This is a representative sample of what he was praying to God. So level one is the fact that it's a spontaneous prayer that he gave inside the fish. Level two is this kind of refined sample he's recorded for history for us. Level three is the fact that we get this prayer. This comes to us. We have this chapter of poetic prayer which has been used for teaching and study for thousands of years now. And when it comes to us, it's not just part of a short story about a prophet and his fish. It's part of the full body of scripture. There's more context for us to understand it. The words haven't changed since Jonah recorded them, but they may be here for us with additional reasons, with more for us to understand than Jonah intended. The Holy Spirit may teach lessons other than what Jonah was trying to teach. And it's important we get that because I say this because this prayer reveals to us not how Jonah had some instant attitude shift inside the fish that changed everything he saw about the task he was given. First thing he did was he turned away from God and fled. Then he was swallowed up by this fish. But I think this prayer actually reveals to us how stubborn Jonah is and how despite the gratitude he has at having his life changed, and he has this change of mind about whether he'll obey God, he doesn't experience a change of heart. He doesn't start to trust God's judgment on this issue. He changes his mind, but he does not change his heart. So we're going to read this not as an example of the right way to pray to God 
or as a verbatim record of the first words spoken inside a submarine. We read them as a genuine example of a man's prayer to God in a desperate time. A flawed man, capable of receiving God's blessing, but in this case, somehow missing God's lesson. So let's fly through the text quickly again. Verses 2 and 3. He said, In my distress I called out to the Lord, and he answered me. From the deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Now this is a powerful image of desperation, and I think it's actually kind of unique among the scriptures for us. I say that because when we get images from ancient poetry like this, we usually have to do a lot of work to understand them because the original audience would receive them differently. So often a heap of piece of poetry we might find in the Bible will say something like, my heart is like a lamb frolicking among the lilies. And then we have to stop and think, I've never seen a lamb frolic, but I can kind of imagine it. I don't know what Palestinian lilies look like, but the author is a shepherd and he's talking to farmers, so they probably had all some experience with frolicking lambs, and maybe the Australian equivalent is a dog flipping out over a schmacko. So we have to do a couple, like, a couple of hundred thousand, well, a couple of hundred thousand, a couple of thousand years of worth of reimagining a picture sometimes to understand what the author is trying to tell us. But this image of being smashed down by the water into the waves and fearing you'll never come back up again, I think we can probably connect with that better than a lot of the original audience did. What we have now, a culture where pretty much everyone learns to swim and goes down to the beach from time to time to muck around in the surf, that's a pretty modern sort of phenomenon. That didn't happen for a lot of history. The Jews did not surf in this time. They did not surf, there wasn't a whole lot of recreational swimming going on. They didn't have Terry Leg out there on a jet ski to pull people out of trouble if they were in it. They didn't have flags that told you where it was safe to swim and where not to. So if you waded out into the waves in 800 BC, you were taking your life into your own hands. People didn't do it a lot. But we do a lot of swimming, we do a lot of surfing, and that means as a people group, lots of us have had the experience of being dumped by a wave and trashed around like you're in a washing machine for a bit, worrying that you might not come up. Probably more than the ancient Israelites did. So if you've ever been to the beach and you've been caught off guard by a wave, you know the kind of experience that Jonah is talking about. It's terrifying because we're used to a kind of a stable world with easily recognizable things like up and down. We usually have the ground beneath our feet, gravity's pulling us down, we push off the ground, that's how we get around. It's a good rule and we like it that way. When you get knocked off a surfboard or battered off your feet by a wave, you have the awful sensation of being pulled in all directions and pushed around. You can open your eyes into salt water, but they'll just sting and you can hardly see anything. Everything's dark and churning. You want to go up, but you don't know which way up is. And we rely on gravity to know that, but we're floating in the water, so it's kind of hard to tell. Up is the opposite of the way you fall, and when you're falling in all directions, it's hard to know. Now, for us, we have three options. You can find the bottom and push up off that. If you're tied to a surfboard, you can follow the cord to where it's floating, or you can see the light peeking through the top of the water and try and push towards that. Now, Jonah's out in deep water. If he's touching the bottom of the ocean floor, he's already dead. He's not surfing, that's for sure. And this is happening during a storm for him, so he's unlikely to see an awful lot of light to guide him to the surface. So he plunges down to the darkness with no up, no down, just cold waves, and the assurance that God sent this storm 
to kill him for disobeying. But God didn't send her to kill him, merely to change his mind. And he's swallowed by this fish. Now, I'm not sure there's a human being on earth who can relate to that experience. Australian swimmers who get eaten by fish usually go piece by piece. But Jonah experiences a supernatural, gracious deliverance from the wrath of God that he earned by rejecting God. That much, at least, is probably familiar to many of us, being given a gracious pardon from God's wrath. So let's talk about the fish for a minute, because if we don't, then we'll be thinking about it a lot. A lot has been made of the fish in the Jonah and the whale, Jonah and the fish story. We often hear it talked about as Jonah and the whale. So first, is it a fish or is it a whale? Because as anyone who's been to SeaWorld can tell you, or anyone who passed grade two, a whale is not a fish. It's an aquatic mammal. Good. Now, I once had a discussion with a guy about biblical inerrancy, the radical idea that the Bible doesn't contain mistakes. And he brought up Leviticus 11, 13 to 19, which... In brief, it's part of the food laws. It's a part of the Bible where God tells Moses about the kind of birds he doesn't want them to eat. And he says, this is a list of birds it's not okay to eat. He says, don't eat ravens, don't eat eagles, don't eat a whole bunch of different owls, don't eat vultures, and don't eat bats. Biblically speaking, bats are a kind of bird you don't eat. And so the fellow I was talking to said, look, you're dealing with primitive people here. They're so ignorant, they think a bat is a bird. And you're saying the Bible can make no mistakes, which is just about the dumbest argument ever leveled at Scripture. But if you look it up online, you will find folks trying to stump apologetics websites and the people who make these answers. Obviously, a bat is not a bird. Because when we say a bird, we mean a certain kind of thing. We mean the animal family with the hollow bones and the feathers and the beaks. That's a bird for us. But clearly, 3,200 years ago, when Moses was getting his marching orders... Bird meant something different to him. Bird meant a thing that flies. Back in Genesis 1, creatures were divided by what they did to get around. On day 5, you get the birds that fly in the air and the fish that swim in the sea. And on day 6, you get the animals that move around on the ground. Locomotion was how they divided up their animals. So as far as the Jews were concerned, anything that had wings and flew was a bird. If you told Jonah that a penguin was a bird, he'd probably think you were stupid because it waddles and swims, but it does not fly. Same thing with whales. The scripture says fish could be a whale. It swims in the sea close enough to a fish for Hebrew poetry and for Hebrew records, for that matter. Now, was it a fish or a whale? I don't know. No one knows. It was some giant sea creature. That's all we know. But it does show us that the whale does exactly two things whale or fish. It swallows Jonah and it spits him back out. That's it. This is the part that usually gets the most focus on the story, the being eaten by a whale and spat out thing. But now, you know literally there is, literally everything there is to know about this fish or whale. So next time you hear a sermon on Jonah, if the preacher spends more than five minutes on the fish, you can start to boo. Get back to the Hebrew poetry. Woo! So back on track. Jonah's swirling around in the ocean. He cries out to God. Waves are sweeping over him. God hears his prayer, sends this giant fish slash whale to deliver him. Now check out verse 4 and ponder with me what it tells us about Jonah's attitude to this whole experience he's going through. 
I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. Now, both Hebrew and English have what we call the active voice and the passive voice. Active is, I ate a cookie. Passive is, a cookie was eaten. Not necessarily by me. It was just eaten. It happened. And it works the same in both our languages. When people are trying to avoid blame for things, they tend to use the passive tense because it takes the focus off them. When they're trying to put focus on something, they use the active, the active voice, I should say. So in, a political, um, in political terms, you may see politicians say things like, my opponent made this mistake, active voice. But if it's their mistake, mistakes were made. They just kind of happened. Who made them? It's in the past, not important. Mistakes were made, but I am working hard to fix them. Some scandals have been revealed. There has been some mismanagement, but I am dedicated to earning your trust again. You see the effect of how they shift the blame. So we could rocket past verse 4 and think, oh, he's having a rough time, he still has hope. But if you look at it a second time, he says, I have been banished from your sight. Really? Whose fault is that? Who did the banishing in this case? Who explicitly fled from the presence of the Lord in the last chapter? That would be Jonah, of course. But now it's, I have been banished from your sight. Somehow I was far away from you. I just kind of woke up and I was here. Who's to blame? We may never know. Then he says, yet I will look again to your holy temple. Banishment has occurred. There has been some banishing. But I will look again to your holy temple. Suddenly, all of a sudden, Jonah is so trusting again of God's goodness. He's immediately looking towards God's holy temple, even when he was getting on a boat and trying to go two and a half thousand kilometers away from where God told him to go. So what's happening to Jonah here? He's grateful to be alive. He's praising God for saving his life and answering his prayer, as he should. The problem here is not ingratitude. And verses 5 to 7 repeat this same theme. Jonah is in distress. God is faithful to deliver him from it. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountain I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, have brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. So that's good. He's received a banishing. He nearly died, but he's been saved by God. And now verses 8 and 9 are pretty dense, and we'll spend a bit of time there, but just to revisit them quickly while we're examining Jonah's heart now. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. So now we've been through Jonah's prayer twice together. He's disobeyed God. God sent a storm to corral him back on track. A giant fish has been sent to to save his life. He's grateful his life has been saved. But do we have anything in here like an admission of guilt? Like Jonah apologizing for doing wrong? Not so much. He at no point says, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have ran away from you. I shouldn't have banished myself, if you will. Nothing even close. He's not sorry. He's just sorry he got caught. Now, in fairness, he changes his mind about going to Nineveh 
because it's become apparent to him he can't get away from God. The fish throws him up back onto shore, and at least he doesn't get back on another boat and try again. He has learned that much. Following this, he does head to Nineveh and deliver the word he is supposed to give to them. But next week, we'll be looking at chapters 3 and chapter 4. And because the Ninevites repent, and they repent really well, and they change their hearts, and God does not destroy them, and God forgives them, Jonah becomes still very upset. His mindset about this whole thing has not been changed. Or rather, his heart set about this whole thing hasn't been changed. So he ends up going there. He talks to the Ninevites. The Ninevites change their hearts. And he wishes God hadn't forgiven them and he should have wiped them out. And this is dumb. He didn't even want to be here. And he has this wonderful hissy fit that you'll have to come next week to see. And that attitude from a prophet of God who had just personally been spared God's wrath, who had been supernaturally delivered from punishment that he deserved. It's an incredibly childish display from Jonah, our Galilean prophet. Now, I say verses 8 and 9 are pretty dense, and here's why. Some folks read chapter 2, and they formulate a theory from these verses that Jonah was sort of repentant, just in a very oblique kind of way, not in a direct way, and I'll tell you how they get to that. It comes out of the translation of verse 8. Um, and I don't want to drag you into a long Hebrew translation here, but it's like this. Verse 8 is a bit of a clunky one to translate. Most versions have it like we read it. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. In direct translation, it comes out something like, those who observe lying vanities forsake their covenant loyalty. So the word that means idols, that is in don't make false idols idols, is not actually there in this verse. They've translated it this way because they think that's what is being meant by lying vanities. But if we had lying vanities writ there, no one would have any idea what it meant. And so you can understand this in two ways. You can either take this very charitably to Jonah, and you can say he uses this term, lying vanities, in the same way we'd mean going down the wrong path, in the most general sense of disobeying God. And if he's saying that, then he may be including his own disobedience in that rebuke. If that's the case, it's possible he's including himself, the lying vanity of his own hatred for the Ninevites, perhaps. Those who cling to anything other than God turn away from his love, but Jonah has been changed by this miracle and will be a good boy from now on. But as we've said, in later verses we'll see that he's not a good boy. Nothing changes about what he really wants. So option number two is to take this, how it's been translated, and I think that's the right way to do it. That the lying vanities are what the Gentiles worship, what the Ninevites he's supposed to go and talk to worship. That observing them is the foolish thing to do. That's the one that causes people to abandon God's love. So if Jonah's saying that, he's saying, those pagans, the ones you called me to talk to, they turn away to idols, but I, Jonah, am going to shout grateful praise. I sacrificed you, I vowed to shout the word of salvation of the Lord, at least to those who are not clinging to their idols. So we have a very charitable interpretation or a very cynical one, and I think, as much as I'd like to be charitable to Jonah, I think the cynical one is the most true here, is the one that seems most likely to be accurate. Because Jonah, as we've seen, never really admits directly to his guilt, and we never see his behavior change. So I think the lesson we take from this is that a change of mind is not the same as a change of heart. 
And God is the one who changes hearts. His attitude about the Ninevites will not change between here and chapter 4. I'm afraid this is a picture of a man who is terribly missing the point of the miracles going on around him. He's changed his mind about whether or not he's going to obey God. He has not changed his heart about whether he will trust God. He does not trust God's judgment on the issue of the Ninevites. He's just been made painfully aware that he cannot outrun God. Now, I like apologetics a lot. I like trying to change people's minds about godly stuff. I get into debates and discussions about how God does things, trying to prove to those who don't know him that he is, in fact, there, that he has a plan, that life without him is hollow. But the most important thing to remember when people are debating and discussing things about God like this is that changing a mind is not enough. It's possible to bring a person through argument and evidence and clever intellectual devices, all the way from saying, I don't believe that there is a God, all the way to, okay, I guess there's a God and he revealed himself in Jesus Christ. But if all that's been is kind of an intellectual change, then they will change right back at the earliest convenience. Only God can change hearts. We wait on him to move before our words can make any difference. And God changes hearts in his own time. Some folks, you'll find, don't know God, and you'll find plenty of folks who do, who can't make this distinction between the heart change and the mind change. They're the ones who usually wonder why God doesn't do things more visibly, more spectacularly. He doesn't appear on TV. People say that if Jesus came back today and raced around on the clouds around the world three or four times, everyone would see it, it would blow up Twitter and Facebook in an instant, everyone would believe I don't think that's likely. I don't think it's likely that people would believe from that. And I think Judas expressed this sentiment best. Not Judas Judas, but Judas from the 70s musical Jesus Christ Superstar Judas. Now, leaving aside personal thoughts on the moral or artistic value of that musical, in the final scene, the audience is treated to a last song by Judas, who's through this, uh, let's call it artistic adaption, of the story of the gospel. He's been the voice of sort of tortured skepticism. He's always been second-guessing things and then goes down the normal path that Judas does. And then he asks in the grooviest possible fashion about why Jesus did all the things he did. I was tempted to sing it, but I will restrain myself. He says, Every time I look at you, I don't understand why you let the things you did get so out of hand. You'd have managed better if you'd had it planned. Why do you choose such a backward time in such a strange land? If you'd come today, you could have reached a whole nation. Israel in 4 BC had no mass communication. And then there's more dancing. Now, Jesus doesn't answer this question in the production because Andrew Lloyd Webber did not have an answer. And he doesn't appear to be willing to look for one. But he asks through the words he gives Judas a question that a lot of people would like to hear answered. Why doesn't God just show everyone? Why doesn't he do something that people can't deny if they see it? If he wants to save everyone, why doesn't he give them a display of his power? So strong that it changes all their minds and hearts at once. And the answer is written on every page of the Bible. In how people respond to God and the knowledge of his activity and movement in the world. It's not a matter of convincing the mind that God 
exists. Adam knew God existed, and then he fell. The first man and woman who ever lived knew God face to face and then chose to disobey him. Now, we just finished our Revelation series. We know the last men and women on earth are going to know God really exists, and they're either going to fight with him or against him. And when Jesus did come to earth in such a strange time and backward place, he performed all kinds of miracles that proved his power, that proved his claims to who he was, and some people followed him and most didn't. Some were easily attracted to the spectacle and then scattered shortly after. When Jesus was killed, everyone went back to their homes and their boats and their lives, and many sadly waited in fear, and some in tense hope that he might rise again. But only at Pentecost, only when the Holy Spirit was really poured out on the believers, do we see this mass changing of hearts and lives changing, and people entirely changing the way they understood how the world worked and God's place in it and their place with him. Even when Jesus was there staring people in the face, there was no mass wildfire outbreak of belief until that happened. Not until God began to unshackle people's hearts later en masse through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's part of why Christ's ministry is so heartbreaking in addition to being uplifting. God was right there and people walked away from him. And we don't have any reason to believe that people would do any different today. Now in Luke 17, there's a story of the ten lepers. When Jesus is passing a leper colony, there's ten lepers who call out to him, Jesus, Master, have mercy. Jesus tells them to go to the priests and be washed. They go on their way to the priests, and on their way, all ten are healed of their leprosy. Then in verse 15, the passage goes on to say, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. All of these guys, all ten of them, had a powerful encounter with the Son of God. All had their incurable illnesses cured miraculously. Nine of them go away confirmed in their minds that Jesus is, at the very least, a very powerful guy, a powerful agent of God. But only one has a kind of a change of heart. And he comes back and worships at the feet of Jesus. He's a Samaritan, an outsider. Jesus tells him that his faith has made him well. Physically, it was Jesus' power that healed him and the other nine, but only this one has been made well. Only this one comes with that change of heart, which comes with the faith that God gives us so that we can receive his gracious gifts. This principle of winning hearts over minds is true for the big change in people's life where they come to know Jesus Christ and you go from not believing to believing. It's also true of the way that the Spirit works in our lives in smaller ways. We might resolve to stop some sinful behavior in our lives, but it's only when God convicts the heart, it's only when the Holy Spirit begins to act and challenge someone on what they're doing wrong, that they really have the power to follow through to change that. God is the one who changes hearts. So there's a truth here both for those who need to come to know God for the first time 
like those lepers, or those who have known him for a very long time, like Jonah. We are at God's mercy. And we can't intellectually devise a way to be right with him. We need God to change our hearts. How's your heart? Is there something you've been putting off for a long time that the Spirit has begun to stir again recently? Let's pray together that God will change our hearts to follow him closer to that perfect standard that Jesus set out for us that our minds have known for a long time we should be following. Let's pray. Father God, we are astounded by your mercy. You are good to us. You shelter us from the storms of life. And you draw us up from the depths when we're losing control. Most of all, we thank you that you sent your son down to find us when we were lost. It's only because you changed our hearts that we were able to pursue you. We pray your Holy Spirit keeps working in us, perfecting the work you've begun in every believer who has set off on that path to follow you. Guide our steps. Help us to be grateful and humble. And for those hearts that have not yet known you, even for the first time, we ask that your Holy Spirit will change those hearts. That folks who have never understood the need for God will feel for the first time what it is to know him. And may it drive them towards the real truth of who you are. Help us to play our part in your plans, God. We give our hearts over to you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.